0: Take your Bibles and open with it this morning to Matthew chapter 11. Before we do get into the text this morning, I uh, sent out an email, but also just want to remind, in case you didn't see the email, just want to remind the church as we continue to pray for Billy and Natalie and Gracie and Noah and Benjamin the situation in Haiti is really insane. Uh, the danger, the things that are happening between the police and the gangs, uh, people now being tracked down and kidnapped from hotels. Um, they can't travel anywhere. It's simply not safe to go anywhere. Uh, he, uh, Billy received word this week that actually Haiti is formally now requesting military intervention from the United States. It's so bad. But the first step for that to happen means that the United States will first evacuate all of their people from the embassy and close the embassy in Haiti. Billy has an interview this Wednesday for the religious visa, again, with more documentation, more things to present if we can get them to look at it to approve or disapprove. But the embassy has to be open for him to have the interview. So I've called for a day of corporate Prayer and fasting this Tuesday. Not that we fast to twist God's arm, but that we take that time that we would be nourishing ourselves and instead spend it in prayer and in the word for this situation. To pray for safety. This has to be something God does. We don't even have a way to get them out of the hotel to somewhere else. The roads are blocked. They can't go anywhere. Unless God opens the door, they're there for who knows how long. So please join me in praying, especially on Tuesday for the interview on Wednesday for the interview to happen. Everything else has been approved as we've prayed and worked through this process with the government. Every door has finally eventually been opened except this one. And it very seriously comes down to one person's decision in the embassy in Haiti. So pray that that person is there and that God moves that heart to say yes so that Billy and Natalie can come back home. When they are back home, by the way, we've got opportunity and efforts that we can expend now to minister to some of the orphanages and churches that are in Haiti even still that are stuck there and have absolutely no way of going anywhere or doing anything to the point that fuel is running out, food is running out, and now we're talking about massive military intervention to try to bring stability to the country. So do be praying. Do, if you can, if you're able, if you're willing, fast with us this week as we seek the Lord in that matter. This morning, as we continue in Matthew, in our series, the Gospel of the Kingdom, looking at Matthew 11, verses 7 through 19, and we are looking at John the Baptist. We were introduced to some doubts that he had last week. In fact, we saw in the first six verses, John sent two of his disciples to Jesus to ask if he was the one. Are you the expected one, the coming one? Of course, a title for the Messiah. He was having doubts while he was in prison and he wanted to know. The question was, do we look for another? Jesus responded to John by sending a message back. Tell him what you see that I'm doing. And listed what he was doing that was in line with what it meant to be fulfilling the prophecies of being the Messiah. Really, really what Jesus says was, yes, I am the expected one. Don't stumble over that truth. John had expectations, things that he wanted the Messiah to do that Jesus wasn't fulfilling all of them. So there were questions. Well, after Jesus sends word back to John, Jesus follows up by telling us, About John. Now he addresses his disciples and the crowd and defends John in spite of his doubts and points us to the prophets and to the one here who, as a prophet, was prophesied to be the messenger preparing the way for the Messiah. Jesus not only confirms who he is, he confirms who John is because John's message was to confirm who he is. So John said, Are you the one? And Jesus says, Yes, I'm the one. And you were sent to confirm I'm the one. I'm the one, and you're the one to tell them I'm the one. So tell them, I'm the one. A message of encouragement as he talks about John coming in the spirit and the power of Elijah. What we see here in verses 7 through 10 is that Jesus affirms that John is a prophet. What we would term the last of the Old Testament prophets. Up until Malachi, we know the prophets of the Old Testament. After Malachi, 400 years of silence. God does not speak to his people. The next time he does, it's when John the Baptist arises on the scene and begins quoting From Malachi, picking up right where God left off 400 years ago, talking about the Messiah, about preparing the way for the coming of the promised one, the expected one. Jesus says here, it says, as they departed, Jesus began to say to the multitudes concerning John, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? He said, what was it? Was it just some noise out there in the wilderness you went to look at? But what did you go out to see? A man clothed in soft garments? Indeed, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. But what did you go out to see? A prophet. Yes, I say to you, and more than a prophet, for this is he of whom it is written, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. Jesus affirms that John is a prophet, that when they went to go see him, it wasn't just to go see somebody in soft clothing. Not one of the rabbis, not one of the Pharisees, not somebody who had a a cushy religious job. This was John who was clothed with camel's hair and ate honey and locust in the wilderness as God provided for him out of the wilderness that was there. This was John who was a hard preaching prophet who had a message of rebuke. This is John, a prophet who himself was prophesied to come and to be. You'll remember Gabriel when he met with John's father said to him, do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your prayer is heard and your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth for he will be great in the sight of the Lord and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He will also be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord, their God. He will also go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. This is Gabriel quoting Malachi from the Old Testament to affirm John the Baptist's father that John was the forerunner, the messenger prepared, the voice to give testimony of the coming of Christ. Malachi 3:1 Malachi God says through the prophet Behold I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his people to his temple even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight Behold, he is coming, says the Lord. Isn't it interesting, by the way, that the Old Testament ends by saying, behold, he is coming, and the New Testament ends by saying, behold, he is coming. But what I like about the difference there is the Old Testament says he's coming. The New Testament says he's coming quickly. We don't have long to wait. He's promised to return quicker now than then. But here is the one who is promised, and it's not just the Messiah. It's the one who's preparing the way. To look at it this way, the forerunner, the preparer, the messenger, the voice would have been the one that would have gone and cleared a path for the coming of the king on his visit to a town. Yet all of the rocks and the bumps filled in and out of the way in the road, smooth the road so that the king and his entourage have a smooth entry. This was what John was doing. He was coming to prepare the people to see that their Messiah had come. In part, we know that his ministry worked because many came and heard and repented and were baptized and then followed Christ. Many probably in the crowd the day that Jesus came into Jerusalem. And what did they proclaim? Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That was a proclamation right out of the book of Psalms. That was messianic as well. That was the people declaring that they knew that Jesus was the Messiah. What we also know about John, though, is as he came as a prophet, he was resisted. We'll see more about that in the text. That as he preached and as he confronted sin, when you confront sinners in their sin, some will break and be converted. Others will stiffen their neck and they will fight back. They will refuse. That eventually is what led to John the Baptist martyrdom, to his death, that he was willing to confront Herod as a ruler. And it ended up costing him time in prison and eventually his life. He came to prepare the way. Mark introduces his gospel by telling us about the ministry of John As it's written in the prophets, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Then all the land of Judea and those from Jerusalem went out to him and were all baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and with a leather belt around his waist and he ate locust and wild honey. And he preached, saying, There comes one after me who is mightier than I, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to stoop down and loose. I indeed baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. This was John prophesied, coming to prepare the way of the Lord. He himself affirmed by Christ to be a prophet. Matthew 14 confirms this. Although he wanted to put him to death, Herod wanted to put John to death, he feared the multitude because they counted him as a prophet. Even the people knew this man is a prophet of God. Matthew 21, 26, when Jesus asked the Pharisees a question, the baptism of John, where did it come from? He says, if we say from men, we fear the multitude for all count John as a prophet. They knew who he was. They understood his message. It wasn't a question of knowing. It was a question of accepting. Would they agree with the message or would they deny the message? By the way, this is true about Christ coming. You understand that the Pharisees and the religious leaders knew who he was. They knew that's why they had to put him to death, because to follow him as the promised and awaited Messiah who revealed himself not to be the Messiah that was expected, but the Messiah that was coming, not one to give them freedom from Rome, but one to confront them in their sinfulness one who was gonna take away the religious system of traditions that they had propped themselves up with, suddenly their system was worth protecting to the point that they wanted to, to kill Christ. So in the Pharisees, there are two groups here within the Pharisees, some like Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea who believed and others who fought to the point that they were willing to see Jesus put to death. They did the same with John. Everybody knew he was a prophet. He had come in the spirit and power of Elijah. In verse 11, it says, Surely I say to you, among those born of women, there has not risen one greater than John the Baptist. But he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John. If you're willing to receive it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. As Jesus continues to tell us about John, not only does he tell us that he was prophesied, that he was prepared for this role, that he himself was a prophet of God with a divine message of revelation to preach, but that he was a promised prophet coming in the spirit and power of Elijah. He was meant to be there to announce the coming of the Savior. It's amazing, by the way, when you realize what Jesus just said here. Jesus himself says, So this is not that that we need Holy Spirit inspired text. And it's not that these are red letters, but these are the words that came out of Jesus's mouth. Assuredly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has not risen one greater than John the Baptist. Jesus confesses that John is an unequaled man in his role. As a forerunner, as a prophet, as the one coming to prepare the way for the coming of the Messiah, there was none greater than John the Baptist. If you want a role model, it should be John the Baptist, the greatest man who has ever lived outside of Christ himself. This is Christ's testimony. Now, this would not have been John's testimony because we know those who follow Christ do as Paul did, where we see Paul as a great apostle. What did Paul say of himself? I'm the least of the apostles and the chief of sinners. The more he saw of Christ, the more he saw of his own sin, as we know and as we experience. Well, for Jesus to say of someone, this is the greatest in this role that he's been called to, that he's been born for, filled with the Holy Spirit from the time he was in his mother's womb before he was even born, set aside for this ministry, there is none greater born of woman. But Jesus says, he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. What Jesus points out is a reality that while the role that John was sent to play was the greatest, because he had the privilege of announcing that the Messiah was coming. In that role, as a follower and a disciple of Christ, we see that the least in the kingdom, the very least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Now you imagine, how can Jesus do that? I mean, is this some kind of new math? How does this work? Is this common core? Come on, I don't get it. I don't know how to work this problem out. Well, it's actually quite simple. John, born into the role of promoting the coming of the Messiah, this was the greatest privilege that could be attained by a human being. But to be least in the kingdom is to be greater than he. And here is why. Because in reality, and this is difficult for us as American Western Christians to understand. There is no partiality with God. Amen? Amen? This is what the Bible says. There is no partiality with God. What does that mean? There is not one of us greater than any other. God does not have favorites. Yes, he has his elect. But there is no partiality in that divine election even. God is not partial. This is what the word of God tells us Deuteronomy 10 17 for the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords the great God mighty and awesome who shows no partiality nor takes a bribe Romans 2 11 states it simply and plainly Paul writes there there is no partiality with God we're warned in James against partiality aren't we if you gather together and a poor man comes in you sit him in the back and a rich person comes in you set him up front it's partiality. You've shown preference to someone for something that actually is completely out of their control. God does not show partiality. If you have been given mercy and grace, God was not partial to you in his sovereign choice for his divine pleasure. That's what he decided to do. He didn't do it for anything he saw in you. That's, that's the greatest news about election. Those who take the doctrine of election and get all proud and huffy about it. Ha ha, nana, God chose, God chose me and he didn't choose you. You missed the point. What does God say about those he elect? I didn't elect you because you were the strongest and the best and the most favored. I chose you to glorify myself so that I, as a holy God, could glorify myself in using a broken, sinful creature like you to attain my glory and to accomplish my purposes. There is no partiality. In fact, if we were to rank Christians, and we like to do this because we all have heroes of the faith, And we like to think, who is the greatest Christian that ever lived? Well, Jesus does tell us right here, it was John. It was John the Baptist. And then in the very next phrase, he says, but even the least in the kingdom is greater than he. Take the least lowest person you can imagine in the kingdom. Somebody who you'd be even shocked to know are in the kingdom. And they're greater than John the Baptist. Why? Because it's all of grace. And there's only one ranking. There is Christ who is preeminent and there is none else. It's not that Christ is first and we might rank second, third, or fourth. I found it funny. I actually heard somebody talking uh, this week about a sports deal, and I was shocked. Do you know, and I, I'll, I'll date myself here, when we used to compete in sports, some people won and some people lost. And if you won and you got a blue ribbon, that was first place. If you got a red ribbon, that was second place. And if you got a yellow or a green ribbon, that was third place. Sometimes you'd only get first place and runner up. After third or fourth place, there were no more ribbons. There was no more ranking. I found out that on a baseball team this last week, 20 ribbons were given. 20 ribbons. Did the manager, did the water boy, did the bat boy, did they all get ribbons too? Everybody who showed up on that field that day got a ribbon and they were all the same color. Mm -hmm. there's only two rankings Christ is first and that doesn't mean we're second that means we're nothing that's what the Bible says isn't it he says without me you can do nothing without him we're nothing we have nothing we can accomplish nothing we don't even want to Christ is preeminent And this is his point to say, John the Baptist is the greatest and unequaled man in his role. But if you would strive to just be the least in the kingdom. And by the way, how is it that you become the greatest in the kingdom? By being the least. God's economy is backwards. It is almost un-American. You want to win? Lose. You want to live? Die. You want to get? Give. You want to see your needs met? Serve and be poured out. Sacrifice. This is the paradox of discipleship that the greatest is overshadowed by the least because Christ is preeminent. Colossians 1.18 says, He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. It is all about Christ. Taught this morning in Sunday school, the spiritual power that we have to see the church grow in maturity. It comes from Christ. It is by Christ and it is for Christ. It's not from us. It's not to us. It's not for us. It's for him. We are his and he is preeminent. This, this, this preaching of Christ in Matthew 11 is a death knell to the self-esteem gospel. That you have to remember who you are and how great you are and how wonderful you are and how much God loves you. I want you to remember that God loves you. But I want you to remember God loves you so that then you will be amazed that a holy God could love a sinful creature like us. That he could stoop to demonstrate love for us. He can only do it through Christ. Christ is proof of his love for us. As we look at the kingdom then. And as we look at John's role in it. When John came. He says here in verse 12. From the days of John the Baptist until now. The kingdom of heaven suffers violence. And the violent take it by force. This phrase has has two meanings. It's a double meaning. It's actually, the tense is kind of hard to tell. It can be one of either one and both work. When you look at this, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and the violent take it by force. The, The negative is when John came and started to preach, there was refusal and pushback. The Pharisees immediately began plotting against him, just like they plotted against Jesus. They couldn't stand his message. They did not want the Messiah to come because it was going to shake their little racket and they weren't going to be able to do what they wanted to do. So they begin to be violent, they begin to persecute, they begin to imprison and begin to kill the followers of Christ. But the phrase then says, and the violent take it by force. And this can mean one of two things. It means the violent and the wicked take it. They take the lives of those who are in the kingdom and in the church. But because of the, the, the lack of clarity on the text, and I think it's intentional on Matthew's part by the Holy Spirit to write it this way, the violent take it by force also means that there are those taking the kingdom, as in taking hold of it violently. And this is a picture of someone rushing madly into the kingdom because they can't live without it. This points to the parable of the pearl of great price and the hidden treasure. I found something and I have to have it, so I'm going to sell everything else so that I can get it. I'm going to do whatever it takes to get a hold of that gospel, to get a hold of that Christ. I'm going to violently rush after it and chase it. And we know that we can only do that when Christ is, we're being drawn to him by the Spirit. As the Spirit draws us, there comes a point in our life when we're no longer running from Christ, but we repent of our sin and we believe him and we run to him. The rest of our Christian life then is to be us running to Jesus, pursuing him. So yes, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence. It suffers violence at the hands of persecutors. It suffers violence at the hands of death. We will, if Jesus does not come back, we will all die. As we said again in Sunday school this morning, the truth is if you're in Christ, you died 2,000 years ago. You have nothing to fear. Jesus said, if you believe in me, even though you die, you're going to live. Death is defeated. So yes, there is violence against the kingdom of God. In fact, I would say that if there's not violence against it, It's because it's not the kingdom of God. I think we have a church in America that wants to be pally, pally, friendly, friendly, friendly with the world to the point now where we've been told that we need to gain the world's favor so that we might win them to Christ. If you gain the world's favor, you are an enemy of God. That's the book of James. That's not me. That's the book of James. Friendship with the world is enmity with God. We don't win people by gaining their favor. We win them, by the way, when you go fishing. Do you think the fish appreciates that underneath that wiggly worm is a hook with a barb? And then when you catch that fish and reel that fish in, how many, how many, now I know there are some places, I've seen places where you go out in a riverboat and the fish actually jump in the boat. I've seen a person get knocked out by a fish jumping in a boat. But that's not the norm, is it? I mean, that's the point of fishing. You cast your reel, you cast your reel, you cast your reel. If you fish with Renee, she casts and reels and catches, and I take the fish off and rebate it so she can cast and reel and catch so that I can take it off and rebate it because she doesn't touch fish or worms. So that's how that works. But if you go fishing, is the fish willing? No. The fish suddenly wants what you've got. Well, when the Holy Spirit works in the life of a sinner through the gospel preached and they, that the hook is set... Thankfully, at that point, there's no more fight. We're his. He's caught us. He sought us and he saved us. We've come and now we're his. To see that then the violent take it by force. Would would your pursuit of godliness be described as abandoning yourself to the will of God? Would it be described by some more modern mature believers as... A little frenetic and crazy? Are you, are you foolish in your pursuit? Have you, ever, have you ever had somebody say to you as a believer, you need to lighten up? Well, you know, if you tell me that I need to lighten up, I'm going to light you up because it's about revival. And that tells you, lighten up, you need to sing a hymn to them, okay? Set my soul afire, Lord, set my soul afire. Lighten up? We're the light of the world. We're supposed to be lit up already. We need to be going. We need to be burning. We need to be pursuing the truth and pursuing Christ. I loved it that years and years ago, a teenage friend of mine was radically converted. By the way, all of our conversions were radical. But he was radically converted, and all of the friends that he hung around with immediately began to accuse him of being a Jesus freak. You remember that term, don't you, some of you? Oh, you're a Jesus freak. And he had the best reply ever. He's like, yeah, I'm freaking out on Jesus. (laughs) What's wrong with that? He's my life now. I can't do without him. This is a pursuit. While we might suffer violence for standing for Christ, we need to violently pursue him no matter the cost. Jesus goes on. He says, all the prophets in the law prophesied until John. We've come to this point in the line of the prophets. Were the prophets very well loved? Were they well-liked? Most of them were martyred, chased, threatened. They would preach and they were rebutted and refused. When, when, we, when we look at what happens, we see that they killed John. And just about the time they killed John, they figured out, hey, that worked. Now we need to kill Jesus. And they worked then from Matthew 14 on, they worked as hard as they could to find a way to put Jesus... To death. Well, John here had prophesied, was prophesied and now prophesies. And Jesus says, if you're willing to receive it, he is Elijah, who is to come. This again from the book of Malachi. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet. End of the book. I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. This, again, is part of what Gabriel quoted to Zacharias about the prophecy of John being born. But he says, I will send you Elijah the prophet. And the question is, was it John or was it Elijah? Well, we know Jesus said, or we're told in Luke 17, in talking about this text, he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make a ready people, prepared for the Lord, this is what Gabriel said. John 121, they asked John then, what then are you Elijah? He said, I am not. He said, are you the prophet? And he said, no. He said, are you sure you're not Elijah? Because you sound like Elijah. You look like Elijah. It was prophesied that Elijah was going to come. And what we realized there is what Gabriel did say. It wasn't that Elijah was going to come back and be here. It's that there was going to be one in the spirit and power of Elijah with the same kind of anointing. I did a whole sermon series on that several years ago. In fact, you can look that up online to look at what it meant that John came in the spirit and power of Elijah. But Jesus says, if you're willing to receive it, he has Elijah. He said, look, and he says in verse 15, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Understand what the word of God is saying. Word of God is not saying, yes, Elijah has to physically come before the Messiah can be born. But one in the spirit and power of Elijah has come. I I do have to wonder, by the way, if if Malachi, in his prophecy, saw the first coming and the second coming. Because we do know, by the way, what happens just before the second coming. Two prophets show up and preach and are killed and then resurrected. And and there's speculation, who, who, who are they? I don't have any problem thinking that Malachi might have seen just a little further ahead than he thought he was seeing ahead. And one like in the spirit and power of Elijah came for the first coming, and maybe it's going to be actually Elijah for the second. It just makes sense to me biblically that Elijah and Enoch are coming back. Why else would God take them? Because it is appointed point that a man wants to die. They're the only two that haven't died. Well, guess what happens in the book of Revelation? They die. Well, the truth is there are going to be some of us who don't die. Those who are alive and remain when he comes. But here, Enoch and Elijah, possibly being those who are coming to preach, to proclaim. I I, I say then, you don't need to watch for the Antichrist. Do what the Old Testament says to do. Watch for Elijah. Watch for the prophet who's going to come. If you have ears to hear, let him hear. But then Jesus asked a question. To what shall I liken this generation He looks at this crowd, at this multitude, at the people whom John was preaching to and had preached to and many of them in the crowd, I'm sure, he had baptized. Now he's in prison and he's suffering doubts. So Jesus affirms him and his ministry and his calling and his purpose and his preparation. And then he says to the crowd, what am I going to liken you to? It's like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to their companions and saying, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. We mourned to you and you did not lament. Jesus, as he looks at the crowd, he he says, you're playing games. You're just playing games. Two games here, by the way, that would happen. Kids would get together. Uh, John MacArthur explains this really well. On the two market days when people would come into the market, that was the day that the Pharisees made themselves look like they had been fasting. That's when the Pharisees went, goth. I didn't eat a meal. Oh, look, I'm shrinking away to nothing. I'm pale. Oh, all to be seen by men. Well, when the parents were all doing their shopping, the kids were playing. And, and kids, as they do play games, imitating what they see in their parents' life, the two biggest things societally that would have happened in this day and time were weddings and funerals. And so they're talking about a game here. We played the flute and you didn't dance. Like we we, we played wedding. And I, I know as a little boy in Sunday school, I was told we were going to play house. And I thought, ooh. Do I get to be the husband? And the answer was no, you're the dog. That's how we played house. (laughs) Well, kids play what they know and what they see. So you play a wedding. So we're going to play music. And so everybody's going to dance like you're at a wedding because that's what you saw happen. Or there was the funeral and you would all get in line and you would march and you would lament. Then in those days you would weep and wail. So if you can imagine one group of kids dancing hysterically and then the depressed introverts walking in line, mourning and lamenting. These were the games, wedding and funeral. But he said, here's what's happening, though. You as a generation, someone says, we're playing the flute. Join us in the game, but you refuse to dance. Or they're saying, we're mourning, we're playing funeral, and you refuse to participate. In modern vernacular, we would say this. Jesus says, it's like you've been invited to the game, and instead you took your ball and went home. You decided not to play. You decided not to participate. For you, this was all a game and you refused to play along. John came and preached. And we know what he preached. So this really is Jesus' way of asking the crowd, do you believe what John said about me? Do you believe What the one who was prophesied to come and prepare the way for the Messiah has said. Because even though he's having doubts, what was it that John had said? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The one whose sandal strap, I'm not worthy to sit down and to latch. He's really saying here too, you've got the most childish objections. It's not just that you don't play along you have childish objections because he goes on for John came neither eating nor drinking. And they said he has a demon. John was there in the wilderness, locust and honey, camel's hair and leather belts. He was out away from everybody in the wilderness. And they said, well, he's demon possessed. That's why he's run out alone in the wilderness. He's one of those crazy people playing in the graves. But then Jesus came eating and drinking. Jesus mixed with the crowd. He was there at the festivals. He was at the wedding of Cana. He was there where the people were. And what did they say about Jesus. You're a glutton and a wine-bibber, a friend of sinners and tax collectors. But wisdom is justified by her children. So John withdraws in the wilderness preaching. The crowds have to come to him, and he is demon-possessed. Jesus is engaged and in the middle of the crowd, feeding them, turning water to wine, living life. And they say he's a drunkard. You understand, it didn't matter which was which, they refused them both because they didn't like the message that was being preached. So Jesus is really saying here, it's, it's a generation that's offering childish objections. First, you refuse to play along. You won't even listen. You don't even understand what's happening. But then when you begin to hear the message, you reject it no matter who it comes from. If it's John preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, he's demon-possessed. If it's Jesus preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, a drunkard. Either way, that means we don't have to listen to anything they say. The phrase that modifies this at the very end, but wisdom is justified by her children. The word children can also mean by her works or her deeds. This is simply a phrase that Jesus says, if you want to know the quality of your wisdom, look at the outworking of it in your life and the lives of the people around you. Is it true wisdom or is it foolish wisdom? When we look at the book of James, Jane says, who is wise in understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. You want to prove you're wise? You're going to do wise things. But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, but it's earthly, sensual, demonic. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. You see, worldly wisdom corrupts. Godly wisdom preserves. Are you being wise? Or are you always finding something to object to? You understand the difference here as Jesus looks at the crowd this, this is what it sounds like in the church today. Someone will stand and will preach the truth. And somebody doesn't like his tone of voice. Or they don't like the label that he falls under. Or it might be a matter of they don't like his preaching style. His personality. Maybe they don't see him using his gifts to the best. Uh, everybody is a critic. Don't believe me, try being a pastor. As As preachers preach. People become consumers and they either want the message and take the message or they reject the message. And usually the objection is really a silly objection. I just don't like his style. I just don't like the music. I just don't like what they do. I don't like the name that they take. This, this is nothing new, by the way, in the church. It happened in the New Testament church, didn't it? It's been declared to me concerning you, Paul says to the Corinthians, by those of Chloe's household, that there are contentions among you. What are they fighting over? Now I say this that each of you says, I am a Paul, I am of Paulus, I am Cephas, I am of Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Let's put this in the modern. He said, I hear about you, church, and some of you say, I am of John MacArthur, and some of you say, I am of R.C. Sproul, and some of you say, I am of Justin Peterson. And you, you, you draw distinctions and, well, this is my camp and this is my confession and this is who I line up under and I don't listen to any of those other guys. And then Paul Washer says, I don't know why you're laughing. I'm talking about you. <laughs> so, so, so which camp are you? Well, again, we go back to the preeminence of Christ. It's not about Paul or Apollos or Cephas. It's about Christ. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, Therefore let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world, or life, or death, or things present, or things to come. All or your, all are yours, and you are Christ, and Christ is God's. Don't boast in men. Don't follow men. Follow Christ. For Paul to say, follow me as I follow Christ, he goes on, and really, he's, he's saying here, really, just don't take pride in the fact that you're following me, because that's what they're doing. Well, I'm of Paul. Well, I'm of Calvin. Well, I'm of Luther. Well, I'm of Erasmus. Stop Stop. You can only go so far. And you claim a name. And as soon as you claim a name, you've got a label. And as soon as you've got a label, you're in trouble. I love it that Charles Spurgeon said if he was asked, he would identify himself as a Baptist. But what he really, really wanted people to know about him was that he was a Christian. That he was a follower of Jesus Christ. We can find reasons to object To people who minister and speak the truth to us. They better be good objections. Because if we're rejecting the truth and playing games like this. Jesus warns us that our wisdom or lack thereof is going to be proven in the way that we act. Paul then makes application for the Corinthians. And I think it goes to the point of what Jesus is saying about John and his calling. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, 18 through 25, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For Jews request a sign. Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews a stumbling block. To the Greeks foolishness. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks. Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. We preach Christ crucified. He is preeminent. We see this demonstrated in the life of John. When we look at his ministry, when we see even his doubts, when we see Jesus' reassurance of him and his calling and his purpose, what is it that John says? John understood it better than most. John could have come on the scene and could have said, I'm the greatest prophet that's ever been. Don't believe me, Jesus said so. I'm the greatest man. See if you can live up to me. What did, what did John say? What did he preach? What did he proclaim? When he looked at Christ, his response, he must increase. I must decrease. Even with Jesus defending John's ministry, John did not say, you have to pay attention to my ministry. John didn't say, you have to pay attention to me because I'm John and Jesus said, I'm the greatest that ever was. No, he said he must increase. I must decrease. It's about exalting and magnifying Christ and never self. This, I think, is a warning for us as Christians and especially for pastors. If it ever becomes about making a name for yourself, you will fail. It's not about us. It's not about any of us. It's about Jesus Christ. Does he have the preeminent? If you follow a preacher, follow him because he's preaching the truth and he's pointing you to Christ so that you might follow Christ. But don't put that man on a pedestal. Don't think that man is faultless. Don't think that man is perfect. And if that man does anything at all to puff himself up and make it about him, what we understand is the ministry never depends on us. It is all from Christ, by Christ, and for Christ. And our blessing is to be involved in his work so that his name is exalted. Again, the best way I ever, ever heard it understood was by a friend of mine in high school. What does it mean? He must increase, I must decrease. A friend of mine named Steve Abbott said, what you have to know is that You want to walk in such a way that you are so close to Jesus that nobody sees you. All they see is him. In that way, we pray that he might increase and we would decrease. That like John, we would get out of the way and point people to the Messiah who has come. Let's pray together. Father, how we thank you for the ministry of John, for his calling, his preparation the purpose for which he was sent. Father, we find comfort in, in the text this morning to know that the one who was the greatest born a woman had doubts. Even in his ministry and calling, he had doubts. But we thank you for your assurance of him and his message to remind us that what he said is true. Behold the Lamb of God who has come to take away the sin of the world. And to remind us that you must increase and we must decrease. Father, I pray you'd remind us this, this is one of the keys to our walking in victory. It's to die to self completely. So that our will is yours. So that we're wanting to do and doing what you have said and expressed in your word you want us to do. Not out of a sense of duty or earning grace, but out of a sense of being obedient because we love you. Striving to please you. Pursuing you violently, no matter what the people around us think. To pursue God. Father, I pray you would make this a a reality by reminding us in this week to come. He must increase. We must decrease. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.